there are two differing views on how Christians are supposed to approach their uh, daily life on this earth, and they, they differ a lot. Uh, one of them is one that you, you may not have heard very much about this because it's, it's an older one, and I remember it primarily from days long, long ago when I was a youngster and I attended the Church of God. Because back then, if something bad happened to somebody, it was usually one of the older ladies of the congregation would kind of shake their head and say, we were put on this earth to suffer. And that was the idea that they had. You know, we were just supposed to suffer all the time. Something bad was always going to happen, and that's just the way things were. And a, a more recent view, uh, and this one, this one was one that kind of surprised me. I didn't know anything about it until maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was because a, uh, a, a preacher who advocates this view was talking about how everybody was supposed to send him money because he had a multi-million dollar jet aircraft that he wanted to buy. And he said that God uh, said he should have it. Uh, that's just a really curious thing to have somebody say. Uh, and what I found out is, it is it's a, evidently a fairly popular movement where people are essentially saying that if God's happy with you, he's going to give you a lot of money. If, if you're rich, God's probably happy with you. You know, they, they stand up and they say, send me a dollar and God's going to give you a hundred. And there are a lot of people out there will send them a dollar, which again is something else that kind of surprises me. But they have the idea that if, if you're, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have everything you want. God wants you to do everything you want. You know, if you've got a vacation home in the Bahamas, that, that, that's good. That's what God wants you to have. And that's not true either. Because that's the, the way things normally go when you, when you have these kind of popular uh, movements. Generally speaking, they're not true. And uh, the more people that believe in them, the more certain you can be that they're probably not true. Now, as far as the, the suffering part goes, I mean, suffering is part and parcel of the human condition. You can't avoid it. You know, it, it's just part of life, and we have to deal with it. And we have to deal with it as, as Christians, too. Uh, over in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He said, there, there, there is a time of trial coming, and you shouldn't think that this is some strange, unusual thing, because it's going to happen. It's always going to happen. Later in chapter 5, talking about resisting uh, Satan, he says in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He says, yes, you are suffering as a Christian, but guess what? Non-Christians suffer too. It's part of the human condition. And it's something that all of us are going to have to put up with in one way or another. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, all who would live godly will suffer persecution. Now, we don't suffer the kind of persecution that they did then. You know, we're not worried about, uh, you know, somebody finding out that we're Christians and they're going to come and confiscate our house, throw us in prison, 
possibly execute us. We don't put up with that here. Now, there are some places in this world, even, even in, in, in our time, where that does happen. You know, you read some of the, uh, uh, the newsletters that we get from the uh, mission work in India, and they will oftentimes talk about some of the persecution that they undergo from the Hindus. And it's, it's government-backed. The government allows it to go on. Other places, you have the same problems. But uh, if you are trying to be what you are supposed to be as a Christian, somebody's not going to like it. And when somebody doesn't like it, they're going to decide that they don't like you because you're the one that's doing it, and they will try to do something to you that you probably won't like. You know, whether they're not going to talk to you anymore or they're not going to invite you out for breakfast anymore or whatever it may be, you know, you're going to suffer some kind of persecution if you're living the kind of life that you ought to be. But that's not our purpose in being here. It's just incidental. It's just going to happen. And like I said, it happens to everybody, Christian and non-Christian. So it's just part of life that you have to put up with. Now, the, uh, the, the happiness part, I've, I've heard some preachers in the Lord's Church uh, talk about this of late. And one of the things that I've heard them say is, God did not put you on this earth to be happy. And to an extent, they're right. But it depends on how you're defining happiness and where you're looking for it. Now, if you're thinking about happiness in the way this uh, guy did that was wanting the multi-million dollar jet airplane that he said God wanted him to have, no. God did not put us on this earth for us to have everything we want. He did not put us on this earth so that we could, we could engage any, you know, uh, fantasy that we had. We can go everywhere. We can do everything. We can have the best of everything. God didn't put us here for that. And contrary to popular belief, even if you could do all of that, you probably wouldn't be happy. It's, it's one of those things, and it, it's a constant surprise to me that you have so many people that in spite of evidence still believe that money buys happiness. I, I'll, I'll challenge you to do something. Get on the internet and look for stories about lottery winners. And I don't care how many of them you read, the majority of them are people talking about how winning the lottery ruined their life. It just absolutely made a wreck of their life. Nothing was the way they wanted it to be. Nothing was as good as it used to be. The worst thing that ever happened to me was getting all this money, if they're still alive, to tell you about that. Because you'll also find sprinkled among a lot of those stories is stories where either the uh, wife was trying to kill her husband off because he won the lottery or, or he was trying to kill her off because she won the lottery. There, there was somebody who... Uh, he runs a business, a very big, very successful business, where they help rich people manage their money. And I'm talking rich people, you know, the way, American rich people, millions of dollars. And he said that they have a saying in that business that somebody who comes into money suddenly, like they won the lottery, he said five years. In five years, either the money is gone or the person is gone. He said the vast majority of people cannot handle suddenly becoming wealthy. It makes them miserable. And the money's either all going to be gone or that person's going to be gone. 
they either committed suicide or somebody killed them hoping that they were going to get the money or something. Money does not buy happiness. It can buy a better class of misery, but it doesn't buy happiness. And so when you're talking about people being here, Christians being here, in order to be happy, forget about that. Because that's not the kind of happiness that we need. Because among other things, it's not permanent. It never will be permanent. Now, what we as Christians need to do is realize that we are supposed to be different. Now, we're not supposed to be different just for the sake of being different. You know, you, you, you have groups of people, the Amish, Mennonites, uh, some others, who are, are deliberately different. We are not supposed to be deliberately different in the same way that they are. We are supposed to be different because we're doing what God says to do as far as the way we live our lives, the way we interact with other people, uh, the way we dress, the way we talk, the kind of things that we do normally from day to day. We're doing what God says to do. We're not just trying to be outlandish so we stand out and people say, oh, look at them. That's not what we do. But we are supposed to be different. And a lot of that difference comes because we think differently. And we think differently because we have reprogrammed our mind. You know, you think of your mind like a computer. And that is essentially what it is. And it can be reprogrammed. You can change the way you think. You know, over in uh, Romans chapter 12, in verse 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said, you are transformed. You have, you have become different because you renewed your mind. You changed it. You don't think about it the way other people think about things anymore. You know, most people have, have a, a serious materialistic uh, view of the world. You know, if, if you ask most people if somebody is successful, they will, they will uh, base their answer on whether that person has a lot of money, big house, nice car, things like that. You know, what kind of material possessions do they have? If they have a lot of material possessions, they'll say, yes, they're successful. If they don't have many material possessions, they'll say, no, they're not successful. Christians don't think that way. Being successful or not being successful has nothing to do with your material standing in life. It has to do with the kind of, of, of person that you are. Again, how do you interact with other people? What kind of things do you say? What kind of things do you do? You know, how do you view the assemblies of the church and other Christians? Those kind of things. Christians are supposed to be different. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transform your mind. Now, this is one of those things. It, it's not... It's not something that happens, you know, at the snap of your fingers. Uh, again, thinking about uh, early days, I remember some uh, people in the Church of God, they would talk about, well, you know, I got, I got saved, and then when I did, I suddenly had no desire to sin anymore. You know, all these things I used to do, I just didn't, didn't desire to do them anymore. It just clicked, like you flipped a switch, and it was, it was over with. It doesn't work that way. I heard somebody say once upon a time that in order 
to eliminate a bad habit uh, or to, to make a new habit just an automatic thing that you did, you had to do it about 3,000 times. You know, we, we all do things automatically without even thinking about them. They're habits. And sometimes you have to stop and say, wait a second, did I do that? Because I wasn't thinking about it when I did it. And you go back, oh yeah, I did. But it's, it, it's a habit that has been developed over time. And Christianity really can be looked at that way. A lot of the things that, that we as Christians should do, the, our lifestyle, uh, should be a matter of habit, and it's a habit that we have deliberately courted. It's something that we have deliberately decided we're going to do. And then you start doing it, and you work on it. And then you mess up, and you say, okay, I'm going to work at it a little more. And you'll mess up, and you work at it a little more, and you'll be working on it the day you die, hopefully. But you can make yourself the kind of person that you should be, at least to an extent, if you work at it. And that being the case, when you start doing things like that, you can be happy in the way that God wants us to be happy. Not, I've got a million dollar aircraft, but I'm the kind of person that God wants me to be. Look over at Matthew chapter five. You know, if, if, if people were to say, God does not want me to be happy. That's not why God put me here. And I'm not supposed to be happy. Again, I'm not talking about that you got loads of money and, and things like that. Forget about that one. But does God want me to be, to be happy in the life that I lead, happy in the associations that I have with, with members of the church, happy with my situation in life, things like that? Yes, God says I can be happy with that. Otherwise, why is it talked about so often in the New Testament? You know, think about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He means it. He's serious about that. And when you look there in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, the Beatitudes, Jesus uses the word blessed nine times in 10 verses. Now, most people will tell you that the word blessed basically means how very happy. So you take the word blessed out and you put the phrase how very happy in its place and you've not really done any damage to the scriptures. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They are happy people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are poor in spirit in the sense of humility. They don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about being poor in spirit. You're not, you're not thinking too highly of yourself, especially when you're talking about in comparison with other people. You know, a lot of people, well, if I want it, then that's what ought to be done, and I'll worry about everybody else later. But that's not the way Christians are supposed to be. You're poor in spirit. You are an humble person who's willing to let other people go ahead. You know, we've, we've got one cookie left on the plate. There's two of us. You know, well, you go ahead and get it. I probably don't need it anyway. Now, I grew up with, with, with a, a bunch of brothers and sisters, and if there was one cookie on the plate, somebody was fixing to get hurt because everybody wanted it. 
Christians don't do that. You back off and let somebody else go first. Being poor in spirit. And he said a person that's like that is blessed or happy. We can be happy doing that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, he's not talking about mourning the loss of a loved one or something like that. He's talking about a specific kind of mourning. He's talking about mourning over sin. There are a lot of people in this world who are really, really sorry that they got caught. They're not sorry for what they did. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry they're going to have to pay a price for what they did but they're not sorry about what they did. In the case of Christians, whether we get caught or not is totally beside the point because whether anybody else in the world knows it or not, God does. We're supposed to, to mourn over the sin. You know, when you think about it this way, why did Jesus die on the cross? He was the sacrifice for our sin. If I had not sinned, then I would not be responsible for him being on the cross to pay my penalty. My sin put him there. And I should be sorry about that. I should mourn over that. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about mourning over sin. You know, are you really sorry that you did it? You know, yes, I did that. It was a moment of weakness. I know I shouldn't have done it, and I want to do everything I can to make sure it never happens again. That's the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have. And he says people who have that attitude can be happy. Even at the same time, they're mourning over sin. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, Moses is described as the meekest of men. And, uh, you know, any time anybody wants to say that meek and weak are the same thing, they haven't read about Moses. Moses argued with God. Now, that takes a really strong character to do that. You know, they've, they've come to the borders of the promised land, and they said, we can't take it. Those people are giants. They live in these huge walled cities. There's nothing we can do. You know, why did you drag us out here to be killed like this? We could have stayed in Egypt where we were. We had plenty to eat. Everything was fine. But no, you had to drag us all the way out through this desert to die here. We're just going to stone you to death, and we're going to go back to Egypt. And God said, I've had it. I'm going to kill them off. And Moses, I'll make a great nation out of you. And Moses argued with God, don't do it. God, don't do it. All of these people know that you brought these people out of Egypt and that you brought them all the way across this wilderness here. And if you kill them off now... People are going to say, well, God just, he couldn't, he couldn't get him into the land that he promised to him. He argued with God. That is not a weak person. But he was meek in the sense that, again, he had the attitude that he would let others take precedence. He would let them go first. He would look out for their well-being instead of looking out for his own. That's what meekness is. It's a difference in attitude, and it's one... Now, you could, you could look at, at meekness and humility. I, I look at those a lot together and consider them to be the lost virtues because a lot of people nowadays don't consider them to be a virtue. God does. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. He's talking about people who want to know what God wants them to do. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's not wanting it a little bit. It's not thinking, well, you know, maybe I ought to learn some of that. It's I want to know, and I want to know it all. And I'll take however long, and, and I'll do whatever it takes to learn it. What does God want me to do? I want to know it. You know, do we have that kind of an attitude about God's word? You know, you think about it. <clears throat> there are some people who, who have a, a goal in life, and they're willing to work at it really, really hard. And they'll put in whatever time, whatever effort is necessary in order to reach this goal. Whether it's, it's owning a business uh, or a political office or whatever. It's important and they'll do whatever it takes. And they'll sacrifice whatever it takes. This is a bad example, but it, it kind of gives you the idea. But uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson, this is years ago too, when he was offered the coaching job for the Dallas Cowboys, he'd only coached college until then. And they said, we'll give you the job. You can be the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, his wife was talking to him about it. You know, this is going to take a, a lot of your time and everything. And he said, look, if I'm going to take this job, there's something you need to understand. That is going to be my number one priority in life. You will be second. But that job is going to be first. And if you can't handle it, you need to hit the door. She couldn't handle it. She hit the door. Now, in that particular case, that is not something that I would advise anybody to do. But the attitude is the right one. That you have, knowing what God wants you to do, as your number one priority in life, and everything else is beneath that. That's the attitude that you have to have. He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to know what God wants me to do. And I will do whatever it takes to learn it. If we're willing to do that, we can be happy people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, one of the interesting things that you find uh, in Scripture is that God will treat you the way you treat other people. Uh, there, there is an, an, an Eastern uh, concept. You've probably heard about it a time or two. It's called karma. It comes from one of the Eastern religions. And the idea behind karma is, is that whatever you do in this life will come back around to you. If you treat people badly, then one way or another, it's going to come back around and people are going to start treating you badly. If you treat them well, it'll come around and people will start treating you well. But that's the idea of karma, and it is a biblical idea because God says it a lot. You know, we have, we have uh, time and time again where he talks about the fact that you can get judged or will be judged by the same thing you, you judge other people by. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Now, he's talking in that particular context about unrighteous judgment. 
But he says, you know, if you're going to do that to other people, guess what? It'll get done back to you. If you are not going to view other people properly, then God will take your standard and he'll say, okay, I'm going to apply this to you now and see if, if you match up. And, of course, we wouldn't. I mean, you know, think about it this way. The, the golden rule is called the golden rule for a reason because it, it is the one uh, kind of umbrella rule that, that governs all of our personal relationships with other people. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Don't jump to conclusions about what they did or why. You know, don't assume that they were doing it because they're hateful people. You know, you've probably done the same thing yourself. You know, don't assume bad things when you don't have proof to back it up. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, try to be the kind of person that you ought to be. And don't judge too harshly, because if we do, it will come back around to us sooner or later, one way or another. And pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. When he's talking about pure in heart, he's talking about a heart that's made up of just one thing. There's nothing else in it. It's like, you know, think about gold. You've got different grades of gold. 24 karat gold is supposed to be pure gold. There's nothing else in it. It's just all gold. And he says if you have a pure heart, a single heart, it's made up of one thing. It has one goal, one desire, be pleasing to God, and go to heaven. That's what it wants. And think about all of the times when you, when you hear something being referred to as as double or divided. We talked this morning some about the uh, double-minded man, James chapter 1, verse 8. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He, he, he's thinking one thing, then he's thinking the other. God will, God won't, God can. No, he can't. You know, he can't make up his mind. He's double-minded. And he said they're unstable in all their ways. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Divided loyalties are no good. You're either loyal to God or you're not, is the way it comes down. It's not, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give 50% to God and 40% to my spouse and 10% to my political party. Most people would probably flop that around the other way. But you can't do that. It's all God or it's nothing. He said, you can't do it. You cannot have divided loyalties. You cannot have a divided mind. You can't have a divided heart. It's either all God or it's nothing. Now, all of the other things will fall into place if you put God first. If you put God first and you try to the best of your ability to do exactly what God wants you to do, you will treat your spouse properly. You will treat your children properly. You will treat your coworkers properly. You'll treat your brothers and sisters in Christ properly. You will do pretty much what you need to do by putting God first, not having a divided heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. There are some people, for some strange reason, that love to cause problems. And I have never understood that. But they will, they will cause friction. They'll cause problems. And they stand back and they watch it. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, that was kind of funny. I'll see if I can cause even more trouble later. You know, 
there is probably a special place in hell for people like that. You know, what, what is one of the things that God hates, things that are abomination to him? There's seven of them. One of them is he who sows discord among brethren. God says, I hate that. It is an abomination to me. What we're supposed to do is exactly the opposite, be peacemakers. Try to get people to go along, get along. Be a peacemaker as much as we possibly can. You know, happiness is not found in things. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus starts talking about <clears throat> not worrying about money or anything else uh, physical for that matter. He says in verse 22 there in, in Matthew 6, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. He's talking about what do you focus on? Are you focusing on material things or spiritual things? If your eye is bad, if you're focusing on, on material things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he talks about not being able to serve two masters. And then he starts saying, quit worrying about material things. I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? There's nothing you can do about it oftentimes. Verse 31, therefore do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. Verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Quit worrying about things. Let God handle it. If we, if we don't have a materialistic mindset, we tend not to worry about these things. Having food and clothing, be content, be happy. You know, uh, Brother Vestal read from Psalm 144 uh, a little earlier, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. God did put us here to be happy. Not happy the way most people think about it, but happy in the sense that we are trying to the best of our ability to do what he says and to be the kind of people he wants us to be. And if we do that, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. We can be happy people. You know, one of the worst things that you can do is to know what you need to do and then not be willing to do it. I've oftentimes thought that uh, of all of the things that could happen to a person in hell for eternity, one of the greatest punishments has got to be the realization, I did not have to be here. I knew what to do, I didn't do it, I put myself here. You know, think about having that idea go through your head for eternity. You know, in John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. He gave them a, uh, an example of selfless service. And he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But what if you know these things and you don't do them? Just the opposite. You won't be happy. If you do what God wants you to do, you will. If you don't, you won't. It's as simple as that. It may be that there's someone here this afternoon that's not a child of God. You have the opportunity to come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. 
Or it could be that you're an erring child of God. You've done something that has separated you from God. If that be the case, then you need to go to God in prayer, confess your sin to him from a repentant heart, and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it might be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing. <laughs>